Idealism is the death of our political process. Idealism is the end of the road to anything getting done in the politics of our country. If you wonder why Washington doesn't get anything done, it's because the ideology of those on either side who refuse to compromise. Uh, Webster says that idolatry, one or ideal is one guided by ideals, especially one that places ideals before practical consideration to compromise. Compromise is the way you get things done in politics. It just is. But what is life to politics in the terms of compromise is death to the message of the gospel. Because in the message of the gospel, there must never be a compromise of the truths of the gospel. The third temptation of Jesus Christ by Satan was purely a temptation to compromise the message of the cross and of sin and of redemption and all that he came to do. It was to compromise. Now, before we get into the passage, which is in Matthew chapter 4, let me just refresh your memory on the first two temptations. The first that Satan brought to Christ was this. You're hungry. You've been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Take the stones before you and make them loaves of bread. Meet your physical needs from your spiritual power. And this was the temptation. And the reason we have these temptations recorded for us in Scripture is because these are the very temptations that Satan will bring to Christians. The lost man is not tempted with any of this stuff. But because Christ lives in us, these are the avenues of the temptation of Satan to us. So this first temptation was basically to take the spiritual power. You are the son of God. Meet physical needs. If you will do this, men will flock to you. Men will come to you and you will build your kingdom. There is no shortage of this temptation in our culture and in our church. I give you two different books I'm going to recommend one, and I'm going to chase you away from the other. First on your left is a book by John Hagee. It's a brand new book, and I know Hagee is a preacher many of you like, but I don't recommend this book at all. Let me tell you why. Because this falls for the second temptation that Satan offered Christ, which is to create a selfish gospel. A self-centered, selfish gospel where the message of Christ is all about your blessing, your prosperity, your financial income, your healing, your happiness. He is brought aside to bring fulfillment to our lives. Subtitle reads this, releasing God's promises into the lives of of those you love, 
by your prophetic word and tongue run from this kind of theology, this kind of book. Hagee's gone down a bad path here. A selfish, self-centered gospel. Take a look at the book on the right. It was written by Ellie Maxwell years and years ago, and it's entitled Born Crucified. Quite a different contrast. The subtitles of the chapters read this. Your identification with Jesus Christ. Your co-crucifixion with Jesus Christ. Your new life now in him. Because we are not the center of the spoke. We are not the center of the gospel. He did not come to make you happy. He came to make us holy. It's not about the fulfillment of your life. Really, it's about the end of your life. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about the end of you and the beginning of him. Because when it's the beginning of him, life takes on the meaning that God always intended. And we see it all over the place. Uh, Oswald Chambers asks a penetrating question when he says, can this gospel be successful? And he says, absolutely it is. Thousands flock to this kind of message because it gears into the natural desires of man. Of course I'm number one. Of course I'm the center of the thing. It goes along with what we think inside. Beware of messages that center on our needs rather on the person of Jesus Christ. The second gospel, false gospel that Satan tempts Jesus with is he takes him to a pinnacle, a high place in the temple and says, throw yourself down. Cast yourself to the ground. Do something in a crowd that is sensational. By the way, Jesus reminded us in the next slide that we are to seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added to us. I give you another book, today's book day, in the next slide. Because the second temptation has to do with a sensational gospel. One where bells and whistles go off and signs and wonders take place. This is written by a woman, I have no idea who she is, but it's Maria Woodworth Edder. And it says her ministry is often called the most powerful in the modern era. I've never heard of her. As God used this yielded vessel, her dramatic healings of the most incurable sick occurred. Broken bones were instantly mended to life. Really. Included with the dozens of testimonies, she discusses the fullness of the Holy Spirit, current displays of God's power, because in this gospel, we have to see those things. We have to see Christ thrown down from the... We have to see something that amazes and wows us. The church is always in danger of going into show business. How to receive a miracle. 
Both she and her audiences reported many visions they had of heaven, angels, the new Jerusalem, and of the forthcoming era and age. Isn't that interesting? Satan said to Jesus, throw yourself down. Cast yourself down. Do something spectacular, and men will flock to you. Come see the show under the tent. Matthew chapter 24 says this. Jesus warns, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible to deceive even God's very elect. You're warned here today. Don't go after a self-centered, selfish gospel. Don't go after a message that sensationalizes in signs and wonders. Can I give you the sign and wonder that matters? It happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. There's your sign. There's your wonder that Christ on a bloody cross purchased our eternal redemption. And everything we need is in that gospel of his crucifixion. There's your introduction. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Look with me, if you will, at the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. You see a reoccurring theme, high pinnacle of the temple, now a high mountain. Um, One preacher of old made an interesting observation that God always lifts us up. I'm sorry, the devil always lifts us up in order to let us down. Christ always takes the air out of a balloon and takes us down in order to eventually lift us up. Always the pattern. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Notice the grace of Jesus Christ to allow Satan that kind of taking of him. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Must have been quite a media display. Must have been quite a show. Now, obviously, from there's not a mountain in the world you can see all the kingdoms. But he took him to a very high mountain, and this was a vision. As he displays before the eyes of Jesus Christ the kingdoms and realms of this world, past and present and future, and all the things that we see before our eyes, and showed him the display of the glory that's in these kingdoms. And he said to him, after the multimedia show, all these I will give you. Satan was a liar from the very beginning. And never was there a lie told like this one. So bodacious. He didn't even possess the kingdoms to be able to give them to Christ. Here he was before the Son of God to have the nerve to offer this. I will give you all the kingdoms. Notice, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Satan said to him, there it is, compromise. Just just one time. Fall down. One time, bend the knee. Compromise with me. 
and I'll give you the kingdom. Chambers writes this. Is it, it is if he said to Christ, you will become the king of men and the savior of the world by judicious compromise. Build your kingdom on broad-minded lines. Be judicious. You know there is evil in the world? Then use it wisely. Don't be so intense against sin. Don't talk about the devil and hell. Don't be so extreme and say that a man needs to be born again. Tolerate my rule in this world. Call things necessary evils. Tell men that sin is not anarchy. It is a disease. We had the joy of watching another granddaughter of ours, Avonlea for a couple days, and she's always a delight, always does what she says. She's very submissive, but she has moments here and there. And as she walked through uh, the living room, apparently she was fussing with me about something. I couldn't hear what she said, but she was doing this. And I said, little girl, I don't know what you're saying over there, but you better stick that finger back in your fist. And she went... That's the problem with the heart of man. It's anarchy. It's our finger up to heaven telling him, you have no rule over my life. I'll do what I want to do. I'll go where I want to go. That's the heart of mankind. But in this compromise, we don't talk about that. Fall down and worship me in my way of looking at things. And I will withdraw, and the whole world will be yours. In it, he says, establish a socialistic gospel. Notice a gospel that talks about human justice and fighting for justice in this world, making sure everyone's treated equally. Get politically involved and, 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 and I think you ought to vote. But take, take the message of the gospel and politicize it. Become a part of this world. Compromise with its message. Don't talk about sin and redemption and the need for Christ. Don't talk about the human heart of anarchy. Sin is, sin is a disease. Not white-fisted rebellion against God. Notice Jesus' response to this offer. Notice verse 10. Prophetically, he says, be gone, Satan. I love that. I love that. Because that's the inevitable realm of Satan. He will be gone someday. I will not compromise. We will not share these kingdoms. You will be gone. Be gone, Satan, for it is written. And he pulls from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, you know me by now. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 because I want you to see the context of this response of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 6. But he says, he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6 We'll eventually look down to verse 13, but I want you to get to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
Deuteronomy basically is the preaching of Moses and the recalling. Deuteronomy really says, Deutero means to say it again. And so Moses says it again in verse 10 of chapter 6. And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you with with great cities and good cities you didn't build, houses full of good things that you didn't fill, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant, and when you eat and you are full, look at the warning, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For it is the Lord God you shall fear. Him you will serve and by his name. Verse 14, by his name you shall swear. Verse 14, you shall not go after any other gods. Notice, you shall not go after the gods of the people who live around you. There it is, compromise. That the church would go into the business. The church would adopt human secular strategies for growth. That the church would embrace and leave its message behind to try to acclimate itself to be people-friendly, consumer-friendly, checking off all the dots of the stuff that we need to do in order to attract, to feed people, to clothe. I'm not against any of that stuff, but none of that stuff gets people to Christ. There's a term that we're going to love them to Jesus. There's no such approach in the New Testament. You can't love a rebel anywhere. Anarchy's filled in their hearts. You love them all you want. They're not coming to Christ. They need the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that they're rebels. They need to hear that they're sinners. We need to hear as Christians that in our flesh dwells no good thing. Because as long as we think there's something good in us, we'll keep trying to be good Christians. And in the words of Oprah, how's that working out for you? I'm sorry, Dr. Phil. It isn't working out. No one can be a good Christian because in our flesh dwells no good thing. But the socialist, the gospel says, lay all those hard doctrines down. Lord, don't talk about hell. You know, write a book that's entitled Love Wins because we don't think anybody's going to hell. It's out there. A fellow named Rob Bell wrote it. Love Wins. No one's going to hell. Lay down these hard doctrines. But it is the very thing that attracts people to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To hear about redemption. To hear about reconciliation. To hear that in our flesh dwells no good thing. To hear that we are a rebel because that's exact. We got the finger wagging. That's who we are. Only Christ can redeem us and save us from that. In this context that Jesus quotes from is the very context of when you get in the land, don't become like them. Three things. A self, just, just, just because I'm a kid at heart and I need this kind of stuff. A selfish gospel. 
a genie in the lamp. Pray the right prayer. Speak prophetic words. It'll happen. Obey the Lord and he'll. That's law. That's rubbing the genie. Because the genie lives in there. Oh, there he is. He lives in there to meet my every desire and need. He's there for me. God is not a genie in the bottle. The second temptation of the gospel, and I'm not sure how this is going to work, but we'll give this a shot, is to throw out signs and wonders. And it's not going to work because I just lost my wand. Just imagine the bubbles. It's signs and wonders. It's spectacular. It's needing to see something. And by the way, it's just not the tents and the wild guys who do it. We as fundamental, fundamentalists, it's hard to even say it anymore. Do we need to feel something? Do we need to see something to know we've been in the presence of the Lord? Faith doesn't need feelings. It doesn't need the rush Wow! Faith knows he's here. Faith is a quiet peace of the soul. And thirdly, this socialistic gospel. This one I use all the time, so I know. Not around the house with Karen, but... The knee pad gospel, there it is. Here I bragged, I knew how it worked. The knee pad gospel. That we would bow down to this world, compromising the messages of sin and redemption and just get along with everybody out there. First of all, the gospel is not meant to improve your life. It means to end it. It means to end it so that his life can be lived through us. We were meant to be dependent on God. And in this gospel, it's not about my suffering. It's not about my problems. It's not about my issues. It's not about my stuff. It's about him. The greatest day in your life is when you get your mind off your own problems, your own self. You become blissfully forgetful of you. It's not meant to fulfill you. Number two, beware of teachings that emphasize what God wants to do for you. Run from that stuff. What does he want to do? He wants you to see that you're dead with him and alive with him. He wants to, uh, you to understand that you are securely in Christ, that all the blessings of the Father are yours because you're in him. You don't have to receive anything. When you got saved, you received it all. You got to know that you got it. But beware of teachings that emphasize. And thirdly, the true, em- true gospel always emphasizes the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. What he did on that cross 2,000 years ago changed everything. When he died, I died with him. When he was buried, all of my past and all of my life was buried in that grave. And when I came up out of that grave with him, my life is now hid with him. There's the gospel. There's the beauty of Christianity. There's the beauty of the church's message. Don't ever compromise. Run from this stuff. Because I tell you, you see it, you hear it. I mean, guys with million-dollar smiles stand in front of multitudes and thousands and spew this falsehoods out. And Christians, hook, line, and sinker, take it down.